You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt, director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and I'd like to begin by calling in the helping spirits to be with us here today. So I call out first to your ancestors and to mine, to those ancestral helping spirits who bring all that is good and true and beautiful in the lineages to us, the living, that we might learn from those who have gone before us, that we might put their lives and all they've learned from their lives into practice in our own. And that we may use this rich and valuable resource to do better than we would do on our own in our lives. To actually learn from the lessons of history. To innovate, to create, to heal, to go forward in new ways. And to hold on to the past only where it helps us to be strong and true and open in our hearts to all life. And so we ask these ancestors to be with us here today to gather around us and to help us to do what we are gathered to do. And we call out beyond these human ancestors to those ancestors that were here before the first man and the first woman, to those ancestors who do not have human form. We call out to them and they ask, we ask them to help us as a piece of this great web of life to do our job. Uh, the best that we possibly can to remember to offer the blessings and to sing the songs and to give of the human heart in a way that nourishes all things and to open and receive from the great wisdom that is all around us in all the many forms of our natural world. We ask these energies to help us to be simple, to understand that which abides in life, to cultivate those things that will go with us when we die And to not spend so much time and energy distracted by those things that will mean nothing when we look back on our life and ask ourselves whether or not we did what we truly came here to do. So I ask these ancestors in human form and in non-human form to be with us here today to gather around and to help us, the living, do what it is that we have come here to do. And we focus our energy now from wherever it is into our minds And take a nice deep breath and bring it from our minds to our heart. And another deep breath to bring it from our heart down into our belly. And from our belly, let's take a moment, stopping everything in the day, and just take a moment to reach down and to touch the earth. And as we touch the earth with gratitude, let's give thanks for the journey that has brought us to this moment and all that that journey contained. Those gifts we've seen as true and exciting gifts that we found along the way and those problems that have arisen we have not yet sorted out how to understand as gifts but trust that they are nonetheless. So we give thanks for the journey that has brought us to this moment. We give thanks for this moment and we give thanks for all that will be. We give great gratitude to the earth for the beauty and the diversity that is all around us in this particular manifestation of life on earth. And we give thanks for life itself, for this day and for the miracle of life. And with great gratitude in our hearts for the earth herself, let's reach our energy down. Moving down through all the layers of the earth, letting our gratitude pour out as we go. And continue to reach all the way down to the very center of the earth. And there in the center of the earth, let us take a moment and connect into this energy. That is the restorative energy that comes from true darkness, stillness, silence. The non-movement. The energy that is before it becomes something. And we connect into this energy in the very center of the earth and we draw it up into our lives to bring into our lives that which restores and rejuvenates and replenishes, that which nourishes the soul and enlivens the spirit and helps the heart know that it is one with all things. So we call this energy from the earth up, drawing it up into our lives to help to inform us about how to live here in form 
in a good way. We draw the energy of the earth up and even as we rise up into our bodies, let us extend our energy down and use this earth energy to ground ourselves so that we know who we are and what we stand for. We know where we stand. And from this sense of place and dominion, let us extend out and create a sense of home and hearth and family and belonging. And from this place, let us reach out even further and come in to right relationship through connection and interconnection with all the facets of ourself, with the environment around us, the people around us, and even with those uh, of the invisible world around us. And let us connect with all things. Let us find that moment, perhaps in this day, that we feel ourselves one with all things. And from that connection and interconnection and that great web of life let us take our right relationship with ourself and set all things then into perspective and so with the energy of the earth rising up into our bodies let us draw that energy up from our bellies to our hearts and our hearts to our minds and send our energy up and out into the sky above you and whatever weather it holds whatever time of day it holds reach out through that actual sky above you out through the atmosphere and out into the cosmos and through that cosmos to the highest power of the universe and by whatever name you know that energy name it see yourself in it and it in you and reach into this essence energy and draw down into yourself and into your day and into these proceedings the energy of blessings the deep deep energy of blessings and protection generosity and benevolence We draw in that ability to be devoted and committed to the path ahead. We also draw down the energy that will illuminate and inspire. And we call this energy down, drawing the energy from above down into our head and our heart, our heart to our belly, and send it all the way down to the center of the earth. And in this way, we bring in all the wisdom of the cosmos as just as we bring up the wisdom of the earth. And we connect these two energies, heaven and earth, between us these two great legendary lovers and we ask that big love that is generated wherever they connect we ask that big love to awaken the spirit of our own hearts and in particular that unique crucible of transformation that exists in the heart alone and we ask that crucible to open up and to draw up the fiery passions of our belly that carry within them the passions for why we are here and to draw down the crystal clarity of the mind draw that down into our hearts we can begin to understand how do I do this in my time how do I do this in my place so we call these energies together and we ask them to dance we let them dance in the crucible of the heart until they give birth to that third most sacred thing our sense or our memory our feeling for why we are here and may you find in your beautiful human heart the courage to do something in this day large or small to bring your own gifts into manifestation in the world And so we give great gratitude to all the helping spirits that are gathered around us, above and below and around. And I also give thanks to the human spirits and the spirit of generosity. And I thank Teresa, Susan, Duane, Evelyn, Masha, Laura, Julie, Irene, Joanne, Deb, Dinara, and all of these listeners who have donated to the show. Um, While we were doing recorded shows and recently, I give great gratitude to those of you who are able to donate Um, and particularly those of you that trust that, you know, $5 a month is a generous donation and that it's fine. Like I said, I don't really expect people to be giving $5,000, but it's not unreasonable to think that a thousand of you would give five. And in that way, we... Uh, are able to pay the bills that are accrued monthly to keep the show live and on the air and available to anyone who can connect to the internet. And the archives for all the shows all the way back to January of 2009 are available at whyshamanismnow.com, um, which allows you to search for shows in a way that iTunes doesn't. Um, but the shows are also available there and at co-creatornetwork.com on that site. So 
the shows are available and I give thanks to those of you that are helping me to make that possible financially. And I also give thanks to those of you that are helping me to make it possible by sending in your questions and your show ideas and um, your challenges and struggles with the different um, shamanic ideas that are shared on the show because they give birth to the next show down the line that answers someone else's questions, even if I don't quite answer yours. So I give great gratitude um, for those of you that are coming to understand that this fundamental piece at the core of shamanism is this willingness to allow what motivates your heart to motivate you into action. So if the show does anything, if it inspires you or irritates you, um, makes you laugh or frustrates the hell out of you, you've been moved in your heart. And when you are moved in your heart, I ask you to do something in some way to help the show to grow stronger, to be known more widely, and to allow people to connect with these ideas and, be- begin- and to begin to bring them into manifestation in the world. So thank you all for that. For those of you that have not supported and you think you might want to today, you can go Go to whyshamanismnow.com, click on the support button. You're welcome to donate any amount, large or small. It all goes directly to keeping the show on the air, and we are grateful for all of it. And if you are uncomfortable with the electronic world, you are welcome to simply email me at christina at lastmaskcenter.org, and I would be happy to give you um, a physical address for a physical check. So thank you, everyone. We are live today, so if you have questions about today's topic, which is the shaman's mind, uh, you are welcome to call in at 512-772-1938, or you can Skype in from the co-creatornetwork.com site, or email me, again, at christina at lastmaskcenter.org. So the shaman's mind requires the capacity to be focused, very focused, focused and task-oriented, while being open to the unexpected and the unknown. And so this paradox of being simultaneously focused and open is really the hallmark of the shaman's mind. Um, The shaman's mind is a questioning mind, like a true scientist, questioning without um, expectation of what the answer might be. Um, The shaman's mind is not a mind that is full of answers. The shaman's mind tracks energy. And in particular, tracks the energies of life as they occur in both worlds simultaneously. It is a mind with a very high pattern recognition and an instinct for the deep pattern that is shaping reality. And this is the pattern that is shaped by the laws of our energetic world that cannot be broken without dire consequences for all life. Um, These are the energetic laws that must be tended and They are the laws that shape many of the shamanic practices shared around the world. The shaman's mind engages the unknowable, knowing full well it's just a human mind trying to grasp that which which is unknowable, and seeing the inherent humor in all of that. The shaman's mind is a trickster mind. And this week is part four in the series on the basics of creating a shamanic practice. And the premise, really, of the show is that while... Our helping spirits will come to us no matter what state of mind we're in, that ultimately, if we are going to engage in shamanic practice, we need to begin to release our contemporary mind to learn to get out of our own way and open to allowing our mind to be shaped into a shaman's mind. And so today, uh, we are in part four of a series on the basics of creating a viable shamanic practice. And I don't mean uh, being a shamanic healer. I mean being a person who is choosing to live shamanically in the contemporary world versus contemporary people that are doing shamanic things. And there's a vast difference there. Um, The difference is um, the difference between someone who has studied Chinese medicine and is practicing acupuncture as an expression of Chinese medicine and someone who is actually trained in another system of medicine like allopathic medicine or naturopathy and then practices acupuncture as this sort of side practice. Um, So they're basically a doctor, an MD, practicing some acupuncture versus being someone who truly is immersed in the entire cosmology that acupuncture comes out of. So it's the same idea with shamanism is that we can practice the the simple practices of shamanism. I mean, there are um, 
leadership training and different sort of personal development workshops all over that use journeying without even really acknowledging where it comes from. So clearly, the practices are available. But the point is, if we're going to call ourselves shamanic practitioners and really engage as shamanic people in our contemporary world, it's a very different thing than just being a contemporary person that goes to Journey Circle once a month and um, likes making shamanic tools. And it's, it's, it's bigger than that. And it, and it really requires allowing our mind to be shaped through our practice and in particular through our relationship with spirit. So as I said, this is part four of a series, which I'm not remembering right now how many parts there are to the series. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to um, kind of remind everybody that in the, in the history of the contemporary world engaging with shamanism, the in the beginning, because sham, uh, traditional shamans in trance states often are embodying helping spirits, so they're making funny noises and moving around in funny ways. Often their energy gets very high and their bodies begin to shake or quiver or vibrate. And sometimes even um, in some traditions look almost as if they're having a seizure. And because um, in many cultures, shamans speak in a spirit language out loud, which is unintelligible, uh, especially to the anthropologist who's, um, you know, studying them. So anyway, my point is, in the beginning, because of these external aspects of very superficial aspects of shamans doing shaman work, they were assumed to be um, epileptic, ill, and cr- largely crazy. And it was just sort of accepted as a standard assumption um, until in very recent times, you know, within decades of, you know, really just longer than my lifetime, people thought, hmm, you know, maybe we should run psychological tests on these people we're assuming are crazy. And when they did that, I mean, typical psychological tests, like they would run on us, like Rorschach tests and things like that. I'm not sure they still use that. But anyway, this was, you know, back in the day. So anyway, um, tests were run, and much to their surprise, what they found is that the shamans were actually the most sane. They were the most clearly tracking reality, the most grounded in a sense, of their counterparts, you know, relative to the people in their um, tribe or culture, that they tended to be more intelligent sometimes slightly, but a little bit more intelligent than the average person in their culture. And they tended to have what was called a high level of fantasy thinking. But what they noted about the particular fantasy thinking, which is you know, pretty derogatory in the first place, but nonetheless, what they noticed about the fantasy thinking is that it was productive, that it wasn't escapist fantasy thinking, but the shamans would say something like, you know, Bob's not listening to his crow spirit, and that's making Bob a little bit crazy. So if Bob would listen to his crow spirit, Bob would be fine. And when Bob listens to his crow spirit, Bob is fine. And so the researchers are going, hmm, you know, of course that's a fantasy that there's a crow spirit involved here, but Bob's fine. So it's productive. And so what they, they noticed is while the shamans had this supposedly, you know, high level of, I mean, they had a high level of fantasy thinking, but it was supposedly fantasy thinking, that it was productive. And so largely because of that, um, this, this began to fuel what was changing at that time, which was an academic attitude change around shamanism and the um, curiosity to begin to study the shaman and the shaman's ways and the shaman's mind, actually, because, you know, funny thing, they weren't, weren't as crazy as they thought they were. And, of course, I would like to say I think that the truth of the shaman's mind because of its relationship with the unknown and its um, very, very altered relationship with typical fears is that the, the shaman is sort of crazy, but crazy like a fox. You know, crazy in a way that is not exactly the way everybody else behaves in the everyday ordinary life of the culture, but crazy in a way that's very useful, very intentional, very focused. So... This is what I wanted to talk about today. 
how do we begin in terms of this idea of what are the foundational, the really basic things that we need to be doing if we're going to sustain a viable life as shamanic people in the contemporary world. And remember, this came out of this insight at my basic workshop a couple months ago where someone who was quite skilled in a couple different cosmologies of shamanism was at the workshop and said, this is so basic and I don't know any of it. So it's that recognition that we can jump in to these practices all over the world and not have the basic principles in mind. And so, so far along that line, we've talked about building a foundation for your shamanic practice and about how your foundation, regardless of its shape, has quote-unquote cornerstones. And this is something that Spirit's been showing me over the years with soul retrieval work. And that, so in that show, we're talking about the four cornerstones that need to be in place and really be um, good, solid, foundational energy um, to support you in choosing to live a spiritually engaged life as an ordinary life and to begin to normalize your journeying, normalize your work with your altar, normalize your daily relationship with the environment around you, and normalize the way that you make your offerings to whomever is helping you throughout your day. I mean, I had a, a short conversation with um, a local person who is helping me a little bit with my garden. And he and I were talking about the ways in which he has incorporated his shamanic practices into his everyday life and how it's informing the choices he's making for himself and his family about the future about um, reimagining what he might do as he builds his business in the future because of the information that he's gaining from his, his shamanic journeys and his shamanic life. So then the next week, in part two, we talked about igniting your ecstatic heart as being a really basic, I mean, as, as a big deal as that is for contemporary people, it's a basic element to truly practicing shamanism. And this, this uh, show happened to be broadcast first, broadcast live, um, right as those amazing pictures of the Siberian shamans um, were circling around the internet. And you could really see exactly what I was talking about, is this heart that is on fire, that is ignited in the relationship with spirit and in the work itself. And this is something that's real. I think is often really lacking in what we see in certainly in contemporary America and in the little bit of traveling I've done out of the country into shamanic circles. I would say, in the Western world there as well, is it's all very ordered and organized, and nobody looks weird and nobody's doing strange things. And um, you know, there's not a lot of heart, not a lot of fire and heart going on. It's all very contained. And so we talked about what does it mean to ignite your ecstatic heart? And, you know, I mean, Iliadi's book is about, you know, the, the techniques of ecstasy, right? And so there's, you know, a, and we talked about the difference between igniting the heart in this authentic sense and the intense feeling of drama that ensues when our hearts get hijacked by dreams and stories or by unresolved ancestral issues or whatever it is. Um, and then within that, we talked a little bit on the show about how to create a heart that is unseducible by these false stories and a heart that allows you to melt again and again into your own true longing for your soul's purpose and that this way of engaging in life is, um, is part of the, really the essence, the, the basics of how to engage in shamanic practices. Um, so then in part three, we had Evelyn Reisdyke with us who we were talking about her book about um, Spirit Walker's Guide to Shamanic Tools, about making shamanic tools. But part of that is, is, is a really basic aspect of your shamanic practice is to understand the wide variety of tools, not just drums and rattles, but the wide variety of tools that you can make to help to enliven your practice in your everyday life. And I like the images in the in Evelyn's book about her spirit tree, you know, right in the front yard of her suburban home in Maine. You know, what that um and how when we create these portals, these openings to to make our offerings of love and commitment to spirit and to receive that communication that it just it draws people and um, others engage even if they don't know exactly what it is. So it draws people in a good way, I guess I would say. 
So we're moving on today to part four, which is exploring the shaman's mind. And here I think is the confusion around the shaman's mind. This is, what, this is why I think this is confusing to people, is that it doesn't take a shaman to journey. You know, anyone can learn to journey. And, and in addition to that, you know, our helping spirits come to us wherever we are, no matter how wretched or ecstatic that they come to us and they endeavor to communicate with us through our symbolic language in whatever way we're understanding reality at the time. And so our helping spirits and their communication with us don't make us shamans either. They make us better humans, right? But they don't make us shamans. These things don't necessarily define the shaman's mind. In other words, my ability to journey and communicate with my helping spirits one way or another does not necessarily shape a shaman's mind because our helping spirits will come to us no matter what state of mind we are in. So we can learn to journey and work with our helping spirits um, no matter how healthy or unhealthy our mind is, no matter how conscious or unconscious our mind is, and no matter how immersed we are in the reality, quote-unquote, of contemporary life or not, our helping spirits still come to us. Um, However, that doesn't mean we are understanding the shamanic ramifications in the answers we are receiving. So learning to journey and work with our helping spirits simply gives our current state of mind more power to do what it's already doing. And that's a problem if our current state of mind is doing something damaging or unhealthy. So if your current state of mind is driven by a deep underlying need to never fail, then your work with spirit will always be biased in making sure you never fail. Versus an actual shaman's mind that would want to confront that fear of failure and to be initiated by moving through it, initiated into the next deeper version of who you could be. So I hope that that's clear. It's actually very kind of the crux of the whole show, which is our mind, because journeying is happening in our mind to a certain degree, can our mind and the state of our mind can, can trap our journeys into a realm we are deeply biased in. And we can still get answers that are valid, but they, but they continue to keep us in that larger framework that our false self is comfortable with. Whereas a shaman's mind is going to constantly be hammering on the boundaries of that false self just because it's a shaman's mind, just because those limitations are there. And that the, the intention by hook or by crook to move through these limitations and in, in essence, these, these little layers of initiation into the next version of yourself is a deep driving value in the shaman's mind. And so the reason the mind matters so much long-term around shamanism, and, and I want to pause again and say there is, I hope no one listens to this show and takes from this show, I can't learn to journey until I have a shaman's mind because I don't believe that. And I, and I think it's very important to understand. I think, frankly, we all need to learn to journey no matter what state of mind we're in and begin to work with our helping spirits in our life, no matter what it is that we're wanting to create in our life, even if it's not a shamanic practice. That working with your helping spirits to help you do whatever it is that you're doing is a really great idea. And you can do that in a viable and useful way, even if you never cultivate a shaman's mind. And with that said, I would say for those of you that want to engage in shamanic practice, that you are living your lives as an expression of your shamanic experience, teachings, and relationships with the invisible world, and relationships with the non-human world around you. If, if that's what you're trying to do, then you do need to think about cultivating the shaman's mind to really understand the larger ramifications in your journey. So, for example, I worked doing more of kind of a shamanic counseling thing with a woman um, over, I don't know, a year probably. 
maybe 18 months. And in this time, she was going through a big transformation around her work, which had to do with theater and uh, um, running a small theater and being an actress and a director and all of these things. And she was going through a really challenging time around that. And part of the reason it was challenging is that inherent in her journeying, and she did a great job journeying and asking questions and engaging with spirit, but she filtered her answers from spirit through her contemporary person mind. And she never saw the theme running through all of these journeys that her life was trying to initiate her. Her life was actually trying to destroy a certain structure that she had in her life so that she could break through the limitations inherent in that structure and be reborn. And the thing about being reborn and having your life destroyed so that you can be reborn is you simply have to trust that those things that are true to you, like in this woman's life, acting, theater, directing, these things that are true to you will emerge in a new form in your new life. Because they're true to you and you're in your new life, so they will emerge in a form. And so she, she got into a struggle in her life and made it, in my humble opinion, much more painful than it needed to be because she wouldn't let go of the very thing spirit was telling her to let go of. And she wouldn't move through the initiation or the ego death spirit was trying to give her as an answer to her question. She was asking for that change and that rebirth, but she wanted it her way in her context. And so again, here is a place where someone, if she could have perceived of her answers from spirit from a shamanic perspective as well, she would have had a better understanding what was going on and would have gone sort of more easily into the pain inherent in that kind of transformation. So... So why? So then, why? So that's why this matters because we are pers- our helping spirits will come to us. We can learn to journey in any way in any state of mind. But if we want to be shamanic practitioners, we need to begin to understand what it means to look at our life, to look at ourselves, to look at these journeys from a shamanic perspective. And the important thing to understand about shamanic work and is that it is moves through diagnosis and remedy. It's a question. What is going on? Diagnosis. How do we solve that remedy? That it is not a system of prepackaged answers. And this is a big conflict right now in the realm of shamanic practice and shamanic healing because a lot of contemporary people are approaching shamanism from a contemporary mindset and they want to codify shamanic practices so they can be doled out like aspirin for a headache or cough syrup for a cold that instead of recognizing that's not the the way shamanism works from a shamanic perspective that it's always a new diagnosis and a new remedy. Now, it's not that certain remedies that work don't get repeated, but the point is you don't presume to know. You ask. Diagnosis, remedy. And the, so now, why does the shaman, shaman's mind matter on the next layer? Because how you see the reality or the issue in which the thing we're asking about is happening, the life we're asking about is happening, how you see that reality um, is colored by the whole perceptive network of your mind, like the story about the theater woman. Um, The way she saw that, she saw that as a contemporary woman about issues of denial, issues of power. She saw it very psychologically versus seeing it shamanically, which is that your helping spirits are giving you exactly what you're asking for, which is an initiation into a deeper relationship with your power. She just couldn't see it that way, no matter what I said or did, right? Because it wasn't how her mind worked. So how you see reality is colored by how your mind perceives reality, which then colors the next layer, which is how you craft your questions. So how your state of mind is going to shape how you craft your questions, not only because it's shaping how you're perceiving the reality or the problem, the issue in the first place, 
but it's also going to shape what you consider your options for asking questions about. So because of my cosmology, I see people's issues, like when people call me on phone sessions, I see their issues through the archetypal energies and the different life processes they're guiding us through. So as I'm listening to people talking about their issues, I'm noticing what pattern they're talking about. Are they in ego death? Are they in rebirth? Are they in an issue of discernment? Are they in an issue of creating wholeness in their life? You know, so I'm looking for the life processes, the patterns. I'm listening for that and what they're saying. And then I can give them really direct journey questions. They have no idea where they're coming out of because they're seeing the problem from a psychological or self-help perspective, a very contemporary perspective. And so at this point, we haven't even taken the journey yet. We're just crafting our question and we've already either perceived of or distorted reality in three layers, three layers potentially of distortion. And so then there's how you interpret the journey you have yourself. There's another layer potentially of accuracy or distortion. Because how you see reality and how you see non-ordinary reality are very much the same. In other, So if you tend to see yourself as a victim in your life, meaning you're blaming other people for everything that's going on, you have a tendency to see your journeys and what happens in your journeys from the perspective of a victim. It's just, again, about your state of mind. What is your habit? How do you orient in your mind and see yourself in the world so i think we're on what four layers of potential distortion at this point in time and then of course the last layer is how you interpret your actions that should be taken based on your journey once again how you perceive of things can really curtail your sense of what it is that you're free to do or not free to do and i can still remember the look on this one client's face when she was she was absolutely suffering over the issues of um, connecting with uh, a stepfather that had been really horribly abusive and was continuing to be abusive and that was only being aggravated by his um, decaying state of mental health. And um, I was the first person in her life who had said to her, well, you don't actually have to be in relationship with your family of origin if you choose not to. So knowing that changes the possibilities of the actions she can take, whereas before she was trying to interpret her her messages from spirit based on a fundamental assumption that she had to stay in loving relationship with all the members of her family of origin. That's not necessarily the case. We might want that, but then it doesn't mean we have to do it. Okay. So the power of shamanic life and our relationship with our helping spirits opens up to these very different dimensions when we begin to engage in using our shamanic tools, particularly journeying in our relationship with spirit, from a shamanic perspective. And so some of the things you might think about as we begin to shift to cultivating a shamanic perspective – and by that I mean essentially working with spirit to help you – sort of grasp where you are in your perspective of things and how to begin to shift from there into into a shaman's mind and then to cultivate that transition. So these are some of the things that are real typical in in the perspective of someone who's looking at things with a shaman's mind. And so one would be the understanding that everything is affecting everything all the time that it is a it is a world where everything is in relationship and the issue is not the things it is the nature of the relationship itself and how through the relationship everything is is affecting everything else and there's a really lovely um, quote from Ram Das about this which is remember We are all affecting the world every moment, whether we mean to or not. Our actions and states of mind matter because we are so deeply interconnected with one another. Working on our own consciousness is the most important thing that we are doing at any moment. And being love is a supreme creative act. 
And this is a very shamanic concept, not that Ram Das is necessarily focused on being a shaman, but this idea that we need to tend and cultivate our mind because it is through our mind that we're perceiving our reality and what it means and, and, and thus what it is we're meant to do in it. Okay, so another principle would be that everything changes when we change our relationship to it. That's very much an aspect of the... So what is soul loss and soul retrieval if it's not simply changing a person's relationship to that fragment of their energy? That's all you're doing in soul retrieval work is changing that relationship. Another principle would be what we believe in gains power and what we pull our energy out of and choose not to believe in loses power. This doesn't mean we're in control of everything. It just means we need to understand the power of our beliefs because this works for most people primarily in the negative, meaning you believe in a lot of things that render you powerless and um, unable to do what you need to do in life and you give a lot of energy to those beliefs. That's, that's the other side of understanding this instead of recognizing, wow, I need to become choiceful and conscious of what I'm believing in because that's what I'm giving power to in my life. And to believe without acting in those, on those beliefs is spiritual ambition. So in other words, to talk and meditate and focus on a very high level of spiritual belief but not do anything with it, not let it change the way that you are in the world, how you parent, how you love, how you farm, how you shop. You know, If you're not letting it change how you are in the world, then it's simply spiritual ambition and then it's just adding to the field of ambition that is already damaging the world. You know, so these are some ways – These are. this is not remotely a complete list, but it, it's, they're examples of what I'm talking about, about very clearly having a sense of how we are seeing how we as an energy being interact with the energy of the world that we're in. And so what's really critical in the shaman's mind are two things. And in the cycle teachings, these are um, west work and east work. And so one of them is discernment, learning to discern. It's critically important. For example, discerning the distinction between someone who has an opinion because they know where they stand and they know what matters to them. And so they've made a choice and they have an opinion versus someone who is judging you. That's a very important piece of discernment we need to learn because because of the crippling effect of the politically correct movement, nobody gets to have an opinion anymore because if anyone voices an opinion, there's an assumption of judgment. You know, if I say I love blue, then everybody assumes that I don't like red and green, right? And I didn't say anything about red and green, right? So there's that piece of it. So learning to discern is really important and one of the things we come to understand because it's something we look at in year two in the cycle teachings is that the beliefs we we already have stuck in our head are the first thing that's crippling our capacity to discern or enhancing it but the next thing that is really changing our discernment in life is um, the result of the energies that we have in the shadow so our shadow selves affect our discernment and what comes out of that um, problematic discernment is our shadow behaviors in the world. So discernment and learning to discern and cultivating your relationship with your unresolved energies from the past. I don't mean past lives. I mean this life. Every moment you weren't able to show up for yourself and your shadow energies, um, this is critically important in learning to discern. And it kind of goes without saying you need your soul parts back. Okay. And then this, this discernment, this discerning what is going on and what needs to happen goes hand in hand with vision. Which in the cycle work, we can't really get to that true visionary energy until the fourth year because there's so much... Learning to discern, learning to see, learning to be aligned and balanced, have a strong foundation, all of these things that finally allow us to really open up to vision versus fantasy, delusion, 
assumption and all the many other things we do with our mind. So vision is really the, the power of the mind in shamanism and all the different capacities of vision, seeing inside, seeing outside, seeing from a big picture, seeing the details and being able to scope the mind in that way, to track energies, to recognize patterns, to focus in, to scope out all of that is all part of a shaman's mind. And when we are riddled with um, problematic beliefs and um, contradictory beliefs, the mind is not very agile. And so these are some of the structures that our minds need to begin, our contemporary minds need to begin to grapple with if we're going to actually start to tend and cultivate a um, shaman's mind. And the very first one is complementary dualism versus this assumption of antagonism in all dualism. Um, Jung talked about this, but not enough. I mean, he probably didn't live long enough to talk about it enough. But he does um, share some thoughts about our Western world's intolerance of complexity and the compulsion to eliminate all paradoxes or what he called neurotic (laughs) one-sidedness and called it um, definitely a Western compulsion. Um, And the truth of the matter is you cannot understand shamanism if you cannot get out of that box. You can do journeys and your helping spirits can communicate with you. But understanding shamanism and shamanic thought, you can't do it unless you actually throw out this um, neurotic one-sidedness and begin to understand the complementary dualism inherent in life on earth. It is the nature of this particular manifestation of life on earth. And it's one of the reasons that I recommend and encourage people to work with the Toltec I Ching um, because it expresses this complementary dualism as it is helping us understand how um, to engage in the day. You know, as with all divination tools, we're asking for help and how to engage with our life. So, for example, I just picked a random example out of the Toltec I Ching, but... Um, It was an example about happiness and cultivating happiness. I mean, everybody wants happiness. And the image is the image of an eagle, and that is the symbol of the day, of the masculine force, and it represents the direct approach to circumstances. And the jaguar is a symbol of the night, of the feminine force, and represents the indirect approach to circumstances. Taken together, they symbolize a balanced and harmonious way of life, meaning that you are able to both direct action to confront circumstances and indirect action to mature circumstances, tailoring your responses to the need of the time. So there's huge amounts of discernment necessary in that, but also vision for possibility. So the male warrior is a symbol of the way of testing and training human nature that increases its versatility and fortitude. These symbols mean that you succeed in your fierce determination to train your emotions, thoughts, and will to act in concert to overcome every hardship. And so what I liked about this one, which is kind of why I picked, uh, stuck with it, is that it is talking about cultivating the shaman's mind, coincidentally. Funny how that works. The other thing you need to come to terms with if you're going to practice shamanism is that there is no ancient battle between dark and light, between good and evil. That that battle is a contemporary battle, relatively speaking. In the more ancient shamanic times, there was an understanding of the wholeness of power as one thing. And that this thing was on a quantum level of thinking different from the understanding of each individual human being's responsibility to refuse to be fertile ground for evil. So in other words, in, in, in the truly ancient times, in the shamanic times, this good and evil thing, they're not, they're not in this antagonistic dualistic relationship. Neither is dark and light. That, that, you know, dark and light is a wholeness of power. And it's all valuable. It's all power in its right application, just as the Toltec I Ching was showing. And that the indigenous understanding of evil is, is on a different level. 
It's actually on a very human level. And it's really just about are you as a human allowing your mind, and it's about the mind, the mind to be a fertile ground for evil, which is seen as a virus. And we talked about this with um, uh, Levy and his book, Dispelling Watiko. So there's lots of different indigenous names for this awareness of evil. But in quote-unquote ancient times, there was no battle between dark and light. They didn't see it that way. That the human being was about this dynamic of complementary dualism. And along the way, one of the very foolish things humans could do would be to allow their mind through procrastination and inactivity and laziness and um, wrong thinking to be fertile ground, envy, um, jealousy, uh, to be fertile ground for evil. And so we need to understand the psychological reality of evil, not this crazy spirit idea of evil as some external energy that is possessing us, but this psychological reality of evil. And, and to understand that that's what's inherent in shamanic thinking, not this whole I'm a light worker, battle between dark and light, blah, 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 blah. Um, so that's an important piece to understand. Uh, in the shaman's mind. Another thing to understand in the shaman's mind is the understanding that this moment that we're in is temporary and to not be attached because there's a bigger energy going on here, which is this dreaming. This, whether we think of it as a song or a dream or the tapestry of the universe unfolding, however we think of it, that there is this reality unfolding here. And because it's a great big energetic thing, human beings need to create a cosmology to see it through. We need a, we need a, a lens through which we can interpret that dreaming. And, and so what's important for you in cultivating a shaman's mind is to clarify your cosmology. Write it down. Make a picture of it. See if it really represents what you want it to represent. Work with it. If it's a, if it's a viable shamanic cosmology, it will expand with your shamanic work. If it's not a viable shamanic cosmology, you'll begin to trip over it. And your helping spirits will begin to show you how and in what ways it's not viable. Another really important thing about the shaman's mind is this commitment and devotion to truth and truth-telling. And to understand when the truth doesn't create the reality that you want, you need to look at your truths. It's not necessarily reality's fault. <laughs> and within this comes a couple principles that are, are important in, shamanic, in the shaman's mind, which is to stop working your own nerves. In other words, don't make yourself crazy by the way you're thinking about things. And that's a close sort of kissing cousin to the other um, principle, which is to stop suffering over your suffering. Don't accept the problem as it is. Stop talking about it and start journeying about it. Accept it, understand it, and then begin to change it. Don't just churn about it and suffer over your suffering. Another thing that's deeply important in the shaman's mind is this understanding of true nature, that there is a, a deep truth of the natural world inherent in all things that are manifest. And we need to let the world show itself to us. And this was one of the great teachings for me at least with the helping spirits was to see how often my picture of reality was purely a projection from my own small tiny little mind and that my helping spirits were constantly trying to show me the world as it truly is and to help me to change my story so there's less of a story and more of a simple alignment with the deeper energetic world that's going on here and so there's two things we do with that Many people create a version of the world that is so small, reality keeps happening bigger than that and confusing them. And so that's, that's actually the fundamental problem with 
fundamentalist thinking, whatever you're fundamental about, it's usually such a small picture that the world keeps happening and confusing you because the world's bigger than that. But the other thing is, is people often get attached to a perspective that is too large, especially from this widespread use of hallucinogenic plants, et cetera, as people take a really valid um, practice like understanding who am I and why am I here and really asking those questions and coming to an answer and they decide, you know, who I am is the universe. Well, on a vast level, yes, that's true. But on the everyday level, you need to parent your child and put food in your mouth. It's not true. You're not the universe at that point. You're, you're the uniqueness of who you are that is meant to be bringing your gifts to the world so the universe comes to know that aspect of itself it doesn't know yet. So if you don't become that you, then you're not, there's no point in you being here. It's a given we're all part of, we're all the universe. That's no fun. What's the point in incarnating then? And so it's too big a perspective. The world's too big at that point. And you can't get any traction. There's frankly nothing to journey on. It doesn't make any sense if that's your starting place. And then, of course, the other thing about the shaman's mind is it is always a trickster mind. It is always looking at the crazy logic inherent in the way forward. So... The shaman's mind requires this capacity to be focused and open to the unexpected and unknown at all times. It is a questioning mind, like a true scientist, not a full of answers mind. The shaman's mind tracks energy and in particular tracks the energy of life in both worlds simultaneously. It is a mind with very high pattern recognition and an instinct for the deep pattern that shapes reality. The shaman's mind engages the unknowable knowing full well it's just a human mind and seeing the inherent humor in that. The shaman's mind is a trickster mind. So what's important also about the shaman's mind is, number one, that it understands when to ask for help, what help to ask for, and from whom to ask. I mean, if you go back to the simple statement I made in the beginning, which is shamanism operates through diagnosis and remedy, that's asking for help. And so that is an important piece to understand about the way the shaman's mind works, is that it's always open and ready and willing and able and skilled at asking for help. But the other thing that's important to understand about the shaman's mind is that it it's all about task and function. You know, how going to the helping spirits to get a response about this task. It's very task oriented. So it really is about this passionate commitment to the process. And for now, let's just say the process of living your soul's purpose. So it's about this passionate commitment to action in the world in some way. But also there is this deep lack of attachment to that outcome. And that is the trickiest thing for us as contemporary people is the attachment to outcome has to do with an attachment to a particular future. And we don't see the future very well because we're the current person, right? We are the here and now person and that limits our ability to perceive the possibilities of the future. And so the shaman's mind is the kind of mind that opens up and lets the spirit world show them possibilities that they cannot conceive of that truly uh, fractures their way of seeing things. And the shaman's mind is the kind of mind that invites that fracturing. So the shaman mind understands that life isn't choreography, that, that what we're doing in learning our shamanic skills is training, and that the dance is contact improv with all that is. And that we have the stuff of life as our medium to create. There's nothing more and nothing less. But we must see and then feel what that stuff of life is and what it can be. So this isn't choreography with all the steps worked out. This is about learning to dance in the moment. Free form and knowing without fail when this is a dance to be danced solo and when it is with a partner. 
And when you are with the partner, who is leading? One of the greatest blessings of maturity in my shamanic practice is having a better sense of when I am the lead, which is rare, but there are moments I need to, and when I follow, which is most of the time. Because the thing is, we are the ones that have the hands to shape. We have the words to sing. We have to step out at times and lead with the best we can muster and understand and take the action. We have to remember that it's improv. We have to remember that the ending of the ritual is almost never what you expect it to be, either because it's less than it needs to be or more. And improvise in the moment to bring it up to what it needs to be or to close it in a good way. So the passion for this process arises out of the ecstatic heart. There is a necessary terror in igniting the ecstatic heart. You must be willing to burn who you are in the moment to keep the fire of true love burning at the core of your shamanic practice while you passionately engage the world. The mind has to be trained to see the world as it is, under what is apparent, and still work here in the everyday world that is apparent. We have to stop acting crazy and being crazy and be crazy like a fox. This is our time. We are the living and we choose to be here now amid all of this insanity and apparent collapse. Someone has to hold on to the practices and create the shaman's mind. And crazy like a fox, act. Setting the love for life into action and manifesting true power in the world. So give great gratitude to the helping spirits for all that they teach. To those who've gathered round us, the ancestral helping spirits, to the earth below, the sky above, and that human heart that unites us all. Thank you, everyone, and have a great week.